Hey, this is Adam Cruz, owner-broker of the Herman London Real Estate Group and host of the St. Louis Realtor Podcast. And this is Shannon St. Pierre, a realtor at Herman London and co-host of the St. Louis Realtor Podcast. Before we begin, we just want to say that we are Realtors, which is different from someone who is simply an agent. The term Realtor identifies a real estate professional who is a member of the National Association of Realtors and subscribes to its strict code of ethics. And even though it's called the St. Louis Realtor Podcast, this show is for everyone who's interested in real estate. Buyers, sellers, Realtors, HGTV watchers, everyone. So if this specific episode isn't exactly what you're looking for, go through our past episodes and I guarantee you'll find a topic that interests you. And if there's a topic you want us to cover, email us at podcast at hermanlondon.com. That's Herman, H-E-R-M-A-N-N, london.com. And we'll talk about it on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy. From the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with Adam Cruz and Shannon St. Pierre. Welcome, welcome everybody to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast live from the Herman London Real Estate Group. I'm your host, broker owner of Herman London, Adam Cruz, here with my fabulous co-host, Realtor Shannon St. Pierre. Hello. Realtor, rehabber. You do a little bit of it all, don't you? Realtor, rehabber, investor. Investor. Okay. Getting there. So today we're going to cover a bunch of stuff about becoming self-employed. We're going to share some tips specifically about becoming a realtor. Uh, Later on, Shannon, you're going to share with us about a new property you have, right? Yes. In Soulard. Soulard. It's a good one. I'm excited to hear about it. Tons of unique features. I hear there might be solar. Yes. Okay. Right. Cool. All right. And then I wanted to just quickly mention the uh, banner behind us. The Thanks to my friend, uh, Mike Brennan, I got this idea from him to have our, you know, every year our company has a theme kind of that we're trying to just keep in mind for the whole year. And this year's theme is someday is today. And the idea is that people often think of things and they say, someday I want to do that. You know, you have your bucket list or whatever. Someday I want to Firewalk is one of mine. Someday I want to go to Italy or whatever. And we're trying to say someday is today. So so when are you firewalking? I'm working on it. I'm going to bring it up, I think, in every podcast. I hope now. you do. Someday I'm going to firewalk. <laughs> and so one of the things that applies, you know, to our, to our kind of our concept of someday is today here is today's topic, which is all about, you know, be- deciding to become self-employed, Right. Right. So I think it's really interesting people, how many people do friends, family, acquaintances say, oh, I've always thought about being a real estate agent. I've wanted to go get my license. I've thought about it. Yeah, a lot. Just I hear it all the time. All, uh, right. All the time. Or whatever it is. I want to go, you know, I want to like start a company that rescues dogs or, you know, you hear all sorts of different stuff that people want to do. Yeah. Well, and more people, more and more people are becoming self-employed. Yeah. And some days today. But first, Shannon, we had this kind of situation last night. We love to talk about things that happen to us as realtors and things that we come across. And so I wanted to briefly mention, uh, you know, escalation clauses. 
Right. So tell me quickly, what is an escalation clause? So the escalation clause is when there's competing offers and the realtors, the um, right in the offer uh, that their clients are willing to pay 500 or $1,000 over the other highest offer up to X amount. Right. And over the years, we've seen different buyers, agents do kind of do their own version of the escalation clause differently, right? Right. Some of them just write a sentence in the special agreements. Some of them want to see a copy of the other agent's offer, the other buyer's offer. Some listing agents say they won't take an escalation clause because we have too many already. It's just been really interesting to see how different uh, agents handle it over the years. But your situation last night that made us want to talk about this today is what happens when both escalation clauses are escalating essentially to the exact same price. Right. So I called you and, I, and that's exactly what had happened is the escalation clauses were to the dollar pretty much exactly the same. Uh-huh. And then we usually default then and look at the financing, right? So Yeah, another terms, has, whatever. Yeah, the financing terms of the offers. Who has stronger... Uh, buying power is one conventional ones of is one FHA say uh-huh. or um and then in this case they were pretty equal again. Wow. So everything was pretty equal. It was l- literally two offers and they were exactly the same. Now one had a a lot shorter closing time frame, so then that's the next thing that we kind of look at is when okay. are they willing to close? But that wasn't as important. It, what I think is really is interesting is they were to the T the same. So what do you do? So, okay. So just to take a step back, you have a listing, multiple people write offers on it. Mm-hmm. As agents, generally, when we have multiple offers, we'll, sum, we'll tell the, all the buyer's agents, hey, we have multiple offers. Submit your highest and best offer yes. by X time essentially taking away the buyer's total negotiating abilities. And now they went from negotiating to begging, essentially, right? And so they both submitted their highest and best offer. Both included this escalation clause and similar terms. And in your case, both included a letter, right? Because the popular thing now to do is for the buyers to write a letter directly to the seller saying, we're going to love this house. We love this neighborhood, right? We want to raise our family here, all this kind of stuff in these yes. letters. And so now in this case, the seller often chooses what they want to do based on like emotion. It sounds like. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's, and that's pretty much the case of the letters um, to, for the buyers to make their plea, let the seller know who they are, what their intentions might be uh, to try and sway them their way. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So escalation clauses is, you know, to me, it's one of the, th- we, I consider myself to be kind of a real estate nerd and I, you know, and I think you might be a real estate nerd too. Right. And we love to kind of get into the finer details of what happens in certain situations. And we could probably do an entire episode on escalation clauses if we wanted to. Correct. Especially if we wanted to break down the one that you got last night, which was not just a sentence in uh, the special agreements paragraph. It was a whole page of kind of wording all about the escalation clause which I I had never seen and uh, and you I don't think you've seen that specific addendum I guess yeah, it was Yeah, I had not seen that specific one. It was just so interesting to read it and think about how like why why they decided to word things the way they did and the the unfortunate part about that one from my perspective was like I was saying last night 
is you and I should be able to read this or anyone should be able to read this and not have any questions about what anything means. Right. But that document left me saying, well, I think this sentence means this. What do you think it means? Right. And I didn't, and we didn't know really how to even fill it out. I actually had to call the agent uh-huh. and ask her, how, how do you, do you fill, fill this, this out? out? What yeah. are you wanting? And here? why do you need this certain information? And why did you mention the appraisal in there? And so we don't have to get all into that, but the, the escalation clauses are super interesting. And I, and I guess the point is that if you are a buyer in this market, you will probably come across a situation where you're buying a house with multiple offers. And it's good to have an agent who understands kind of the complexities of how to, how to handle that, you know, and right. what, what do you do? I when, really have yeah, offers for buyers where there's not multiple offers anymore. Yeah. And so you have your own like strategies probably to win. Right. And like you're saying, when the terms are the same, it comes down to other things like the letter or, you know, we often encourage our agents to just basically try to make friends or whatever, like try to really call the listing agent and find out what else the seller is looking for. What else they care about. Yeah. There might be terms or anything like that. So, all right. Thanks for sharing about that. Um, as we're going to get into today, talking about self-employed, being self-employed and we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff related to that. We have this whole list of questions that were submitted to us. Um, I wanted to make a couple of disclosures, if you don't mind. Please do. Um, maybe the boring part of our podcast, but you know, Shannon and I are both realtors. We're not attorneys. We're not CPAs. And so if we say anything today that we want you to, before you would act on it, I guess, we would want you to consult with your attorney or your CPA and make sure that they agree with what we're saying or that they think it's the best move. You know, I'm or basically giving right my opinion. what's right for you for your specific scenario. Good, good, every scenario great way to say is it. different. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, we're recording this podcast today. We are live, but it's also an audio that people might be listening to today, a month from now, five years from now. And so things change. And so no matter when you are listening to this, we want you to reach out again to your attorney or CPA to verify that what we're saying is still the case. And actually, I really want you to reach out to us too, you know, and make sure that what we're saying is still the case. Yes. And tax laws change every year. So just assume things change. Yeah. So you're ready to jump into it? Yes, let's do it. Cool. Okay. So we have this big list of questions. And and again, the main concept here is I'm thinking about becoming self-employed and I have all these questions. How do I do it? What do I do? What do I need to think about? What do I need to be concerned about? And, so and we're gonna, a part of becoming a real estate agent is becoming self-employed. So whether you're becoming a real estate agent or you're opening up a dog walking business. Absolutely. A lot of these questions will pertain to you. And then we are going to jump into um, a lot of specific questions about becoming a realtor yes. as we go on too. So um, the first question was, what special things do I need to do to become self-employed? And uh, do you want to share any thoughts on that? Well, when I saw this question, I was like, well, nothing. You just kind of start doing whatever it is that you want to do. Well, I'll tell you the first thing that Aunt Mersey said to me when I told her. Aunt who? Aunt Mersey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I was going to quit, I used to be an auditor, you know, and when I was going to quit oh, my auditing right. job to become a full-time realtor, this was in 2005. Because you went to school to be an accountant. I did. Aunt Mersey said, what about health insurance? Right? right. And if luckily for me, I had already figured that out and I was able to say, well, Aunt Mary, guess what? I'm able to get health insurance like a single user health insurance plan. And and it's actually going to be cheaper for me. This was back in the day, 
let's leave politics aside, but this was back in the day. My health insurance was actually going to be cheaper for me than even my portion of what I paid when I was employed as an auditor. Yeah, you know, actually, I had the same scenario. Yeah. So, so when I came out of the corporate world and I went and got my own um, policy. Yeah, it went down. Well, I think that a lot of times in the corporate world, you know, you're paying for the insurance of of everyone at that company. You I know? will say that's not the case any longer. So Yeah, I, my insurance is, I don't know what it would be now in a corporate world, but my insurance today is drastically higher than what I was paying back then. But so Exponentially. Special things I need to do to become self-employed. I want you to look into health insurance. Um, as we already said, I want you to talk to an attorney and uh, a CPA and kind of see how they want you to structure sort of your business entity and then and talk I think to- a CPA is a great place to start if you're thinking about becoming self-employed. I think a CPA can really get you set up. Yeah. You might need the attorney possibly for an LLC or for some other things, but well, usually CPAs can really get you on the right track. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they CPA. all have their own perspective. So the accountant, the CPA, will be giving you information from his perspective or their perspective about you know tax purposes and whatever. You know, and for example, we'll talk this about this a little bit. How if you start an LLC, you're still technically what they call a sole proprietor. If you're the only one who owns this LLC, then you're still technically a sole proprietor because an LLC is what they call a flow through entity. So your LLC doesn't actually have its own tax return. You know, Shannon St. Pierre still just does her own tax return. And so from the accountant's perspective, he doesn't care about the LLC. Right. Right. Now it depends on how you set up the LLC. So I don't want to just willy-nilly say go you know set up the llc um when you're setting up the llc you have to determine if you're going to be a sole proprietor uh-huh. um an llc tax as an s corp or c corp i think yeah. you can do so there are some choices and there are some tax there are consequences. choices and tax consequences talk to your cpa again most likely if you're just starting your own small business i think that you're going to just be taxed as a sole proprietor. You're probably going to take the like S corp election a couple of years down the road. Once your income, or uh, your company's revenue is a lot higher um, than getting started. But so the CPA will say, you know, who cares if you're an LLC or not, because it's going to be taxed the same, but the attorney might say you should be an LLC for liability protection. Right. You know? LLC stands for limited liability. Okay. So we want to talk to health insurance. We want to talk to our CPA, we want to talk to our attorney. We probably want to talk to an insurance person in general about getting business-related insurance, maybe errors and emissions, maybe general liability. There's a lot of different types of insurances that are available. And any insurance agent would love to tell you all about it, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. Call <laughs> You all know one. Call your insurance agent. So, And then they say, what's the very first step to uh, in becoming self-employed? Uh, it's like a loaded question. It's like, well, should you figure out what kind of company you want to do? Should like the, the first step, I think, would be to like have some sort of a goal on what you want to do. Yes. You know, you can you can start an LLC today very easily, and you can order business cards that say "President" on them, right? Correct. But the company has to have some sort of a name and a mission or a vision or you know some sort of a goal, and so I think the first steps to becoming self-employed would probably be to figure out exactly what you want to do. Hopefully, a, a lot of people, I think, make that decision and it's money motivated, but hopefully you're also going to include things in there about what you're interested in or passionate about, you know, that kind of thing. 
what is my business classified as to the government? And I think we've sort of answered that already, where if you're an LLC, a single owner LLC, then you're basically classified as a sole proprietor to the government. If you if your business grows, then you may end up becoming S Corp. And if it grows a lot more, you might end up becoming C Corp. I hear a lot of people are not, you know, like kind of single owner or smaller companies, probably with revenue under $10 million or something like that, are not doing C Corp so much anymore because... No, I think the C Corp really is corporation. Like, yeah. Mega you cor- can, large, large I can start large a C Corp today, right? But there's no kind of the purpose. I think there's the point no is there's no purpose in doing it yeah. until I'm huge. And I have a board of directors and I have maybe even stockholders and all this kind of yes. stuff. Yes. And they, and you have to follow all those. So even if you're a C, um, an S Corp, you have to have meetings on file every year. Yeah. Like the meeting minutes for the S Corp. Yeah. So there's still rules that apply. But it's like, welcome to self-employment because you're going to get different answers from whoever you talk to. Pretty right? much. Right. And your different attorneys will give you different answers. Some attorneys will tell you that you should file your LLC in Nevada because they have a history of not piercing the corporate veil. Some will say Delaware. You notice a lot of companies are Delaware's uh, another out one. of Delaware this because of the pro-business, yeah. pro-business, tax savings, whatever. But no matter what, whoever you talk to, they're all going to give you different advice. Your insurance company is going to want to sell you a bunch of insurance. Your CPA is going to want you to get QuickBooks, you know, and pay a monthly fee for that. Like, but welcome to being self-employed. You are the boss. You get to make decisions. And I think that's part of the fun of it. Right. And I think it doesn't have to be super complicated. I think it's just a matter of, you know, just documenting initially. I mean, if you want to just start a business, just start documenting, you know, your expenses. Yeah. And then uh, I see the next question is, do I need a separate checking account? Just open up a second checking account. Doesn't necessarily have to be in the business name. Just open up a second checking account. Yeah. Maybe get a different credit card and put all business expenses on the credit card, do all payments to that separate checking account. So we have another one. How is a W-2 employee different from an independent contractor? Um, a W-2 employee is an employee somewhere. And my example is always like, let's say you work somewhere and you're paid your, you know, they hire you on as you're paying, you're going to be paid $10 an hour. Yes. Right. Most likely what you find on your paycheck, and these are just rough numbers, is that you're actually like taking home closer to something like $8 an hour. Right. Because after taxes and, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So they withhold the, the taxes and pay the taxes for you. They withhold the taxes and pay the taxes for you. But your company is actually paying out closer to $12 an hour. So yes. there's somewhere around that $4 per every hour that you work that's being paid in, in taxes. And so the, I guess the main difference is W-2 employee, the employer is paying your taxes for you from an independent contractor you need to track your expenses and pay your own taxes, right? So like as an independent contractor, as a realtor, if I owe one of our realtors $1,000, for example, I give them $1,000. You know, we don't take taxes out and then give them $800. We give them $1,000 and then it's on the the realtor with, you know, we give help and guidance and all this kind of stuff, but it's on the realtor to then deduct their expenses and then pay taxes on the, you know, the remaining income essentially. And then before we talk about the banking thing, the next one was, do I need an employer identification number, EIN, and do I need to set up an LLC? Um, most likely, you will get an EIN number, uh, which you get by going to irs.gov. So you're going to go to 
in Missouri, you're going to go to sos.mo.gov first to file for your LLC if you don't have an attorney do it, or that's what your attorney is going to do. You go to sos.mo.gov and you file, you get your LLC. Um, and so then you get your articles of incorporation and all that kind of stuff. And then you're going to go to irs.gov and you're going to file for an EIN number, which is what you're going to need to open a bank account. Right. So if it's you want employer to open a employer identification number. But an EIN is just like a social security number for the business. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's essentially what it is. So the next question, do I need a separate checking account? Do I need a special type of checking account? How do I avoid checking account fees? Does it matter if the checking account is online or only a part of a credit union? Um, so I would say, again, if you're just an LLC or you're a flow-through entity, do you need a separate checking account? No, not necessarily, but I would encourage you to get one. I personally would encourage you strongly to get a separate checking account and a separate credit card so that you can easily keep track of your expenses um, through the credit card and then through the checking account, you can just keep track of your income and all that stuff. And it's better to not have it kind of merged. And there's another word that I'll think of later um, where you're, you're commingling. commingling. Yeah. You don't really want to commingle like, hey, I had to buy my um, daughter some new soccer cleats. And hey, I had to pay like my printer bill for the, you know, for my business right. and the same account. It just makes it really hard to track. And so. It's generally free to open a checking account somewhere at some bank or credit union. A credit union, so you, they are. So you might as well have it and it just make your kind of accounting and, and tracking a lot easier. In regards to the checking account, for the bank, if you want the checking account in the business name, then you do actually have to have the business papers to go along with that. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the LLC set up or anything of the sort, then you can't have a checking account in a business name that you're just totally using. You'll need an LLC and you'll need the EIN number. Yes. If you do it yourself, that's roughly, uh, I think roughly a hundred dollars, maybe even less. It's been a little while since I set one up. It's not a ton of money. If oh, you, for in in the state of Missouri, it's different in Illinois. In the state of Missouri, there you go. <laughs> and if you pay your attorney to do it, it'll cost obviously some amount greater than that. Depending I on think what it was they like four fifty or something. I don't know. Yeah, and so they're basically, you know, you're paying and depending them on what to, you're doing and what kind of LLC you're setting up. Yeah, and I guess if they're going to get into like an operating agreement, you know, you don't most. I think. LLC people that just own their own company by themselves probably don't even have an operating agreement. Right. But if you start taking on a partner or anything like that, um, then you should, in my opinion, you should get an operating agreement that outlines, it's kind of like a prenup. You know, what happens if I die? What happens if you die? What happens if I hate you? What happens if you hate me? Right. What happens if well, we and the bank sell? asks for that too. So we have a checking account in a business name. They want a copy of your operating yes. agreement, which I think that you can Beautiful. say like, I don't have one or like, here it is. It's a one page thing. Yeah. They, and then like I think they give you a form or something, something like that. Yeah, I don't it's it's exactly more like if you're going to have a partner or like, in my case, I've gone into business with a few different people buying a property with them. Yeah. And so we, we, you know, we put the property in the LLC name and then we have an operating agreement again. So what if I want to sell and you don't want to sell and it kind of outlines and who comes up with the operating thing. agreement? We used an attorney to do it. Okay, and so then do you just use the same one now? Do you just copy and paste? Um, it depends. Uh, if in, in Mike, so what we did at the very beginning was, you know, a guy and I, uh, Matt and I, were going to buy a building, and so we needed an operating agreement. 
And so basically the attorney asked us a ton of questions and then we had a ton of questions and ideas on how we wanted to handle things. And so then they kind of took all of our question answers to all the questions they asked and all of our comments or whatever, and put that into a workable operating agreement. Okay. And so then I have used essentially that same operating agreement over again with other people that I bought properties with, where it's a really similar situation. Me personally, I like to pay the attorney to, you know, just like, hey, I'm doing, I'm going to reuse the same operating agreement, but it's a slightly different deal. I just like to pay them to refresh it or just make sure it's done right because it's such a big deal. So is it expensive? Um, the first time we had it made, I think it was expensive. I don't remember exactly how much it was. Let me guess a thousand dollars, something like that. It'll totally depend on the attorney that you use. I'm sure you can get a free one online and whatever, but then every time we update it for a new one, you know, it's only about an hour or so of their time. And so it's whatever their hourly charges, you know, but like that, that's the kind of thing that people love to, to skip that. And they go, I don't want to pay that $300, whatever. I don't, I don't have to pay it. I don't want to pay it. Right. But then I think that's the kind of thing that when you need it, you're so happy that you have it and you, you're so happy that you paid that money to do it. And so for something like an operating agreement, that 300 should be just automatically calculated in the cost of, you know, taking on this property, right? Yeah. So like you do insurance, the mortgage payments, yeah, taxes. Totally. So $300 should be just kind of included in there. Just considered in there. Yeah, exactly. doesn't matter if the checking account is online only or a part of a credit union. I... I don't, I don't think so. personal preference? Yeah, I mean, I kind of like going to the bank occasionally to get some cash or whatever. Yes, I do. Aw, a little old-fashioned? Well, I don't understand. Maybe I'm a little old school. I don't get it. If you have one of these online banks and you need cash, what do you do? And you're going to say, you go to an ATM, Adam. Probably, right? That's what you do. I guess you go to an ATM. Uh, Who needs cash? Can you deposit cash to an ATM the same way? You just take a picture of the check. What if it's cash? Can you take a picture of the cash? <laughs> <laughs> and, in, and then on the side note, can you keep taking that picture yeah. of the same cash? Yeah. Um, so if you need cash, I'm assuming it's just an ATM thing. Yeah. So um, you can look into a personal preference. You know, I, I think the goal is to find a bank that isn't going to charge you any fees at all. You know, hi, I'd like to give you my money. Well, we're going to have to charge you for that. You know, I went to some banks when we were, I've started bank accounts before and they wanted to charge me like $40 a year fee or $40 to set up. I'm um, like, business no. checking accounts are a moneymaker. So I do encourage you to kind of shop around on that one because I think in most places that you go, they do have fees. Yeah. Shop around. Yeah. Let's see. Do I need a separate credit card? Is there something I need to do to make it a business credit card? What credit card has the best perks? So... I do encourage you to get a separate credit card. Again, I already mentioned that so you can track your expenses separately. You know, if you take your wife out to lunch or your husband out to lunch, whatever, you use your personal credit card, right? But if you're going to maybe put uh, gas in your car or buy a sign for your business or something like that, then you use your business credit card. It just makes accounting for everything that much easier. It really, really makes a huge difference in regards to accounting and taxes and getting everything together. Yeah. Is there something I need to do to make it a business credit card? Not that I know of. I think I, 
I guess I do have one credit card that's a business credit card, and I might have just applied as a business. I don't think my personal opinion is that it's not important whether it's a business credit card or not, especially well, if no, you're not trying to say, establish yeah. credit for your business. Well, yeah, I don't know that it will establish, but most credit card companies will allow you to do a check that box, business credit card, business name, and there's nothing specific that you have to do like it is opening up a checking account where you have to bring in the operating agreement mm-hmm. um, or your LLC documents or anything of the sort. Credit card would be like, great, that's fine by me. Now, there is a difference between, on some of them, mm-hmm. a personal credit card and a business credit card. Like my business credit card has a lot more advantages. Like I have a lot more like car rental. Oh, uh, discounts and stuff. Yeah, well, uh, coverage. Okay, okay. So I don't, you know, the insurance that they always try to sell you at car rental places, like my credit card already, my business credit card already offers that Mm -hmm. coverage, that insurance coverage, where my personal credit card does not. So renting a car should always go under the business credit card. Yeah. I know one of the credit cards I have, you get free TSA pre-check with that. You know, like, so you you get TSA, free TSA pre-check. You get access to the priority pass in the airport. So that's like, the little oh, lounge where it's like um, free like drinks a and stuff. Type? No, is this is like a, I think card? it's called Chase Sapphire Reserve or something like oh, that. Oh, the you know? Sapphire. And it's metal too. You feel pretty special when you take out your metal credit card. Yeah, my Amazon is metal too. So. Is it? Yeah. Oh, you're pretty either. fancy, aren't you? No, no, I'm just um, saying. The credit well, card perks, I guess, matter to different people. If you like mileage, if you like travel, like, yeah. if you want just discounts, if you, I think some of them have bigger cash back than the others. No matter what credit card you go with, if you're not paying it off every month, you're paying for all those perks. Yeah, we've talked about yeah. this, I think. Pay it off every month. That's yeah, a good tip. Yeah, because otherwise, that, those finance, otherwise, just go for a lower um, credit card with lower fee, fees and finance charges versus... Yeah, the- every business is different. My hope for you would be that you are like paying off your credit card bill every single month because you don't want to start incurring a big credit card bill right. uh, debt well, you know I'm just, I'd say, I'd say that. how do i keep track of my expenses do i need a quickbooks subscription can i use a google sheets template so keeping track of your expenses again separate bank account separate credit card and then do i need a quickbooks subscription i would say maybe not yet if you're just getting started or like most of our realtors i don't think they have a quickbooks subscription well it, uh, quickbooks is really nice so I, I i agree i see where you're going with that like i think i used excel spreadsheet uh-huh. for a yeah. while yeah and then moved into quickbooks and it is pretty sweet because every time i have my credit card and my quickbooks connected so every right. time the charges it automatically goes in there and then i have categories and so i just go to quickbooks and just make sure everything's been are you paying for QuickBooks? $10 a month. $10 a month, okay. I think it's I'm paying so like 70 I don't know what the difference is. Well, there's the, the self-employed one, which is like it doesn't, it's very, very basic. I almost think okay. I kind of don't, I need the next level up okay. from there. It's addicting. Wait, just hold on. But it's, but all you have to do is create your report for your accountant at the end of the year or however you do your mm-hmm. taxes and you're done. It's just so, my, doing my taxes got so much easier when I started using QuickBooks, even over Excel. Okay. So do I need a QuickBooks subscription? No. Could you get one? Yes. Sounds like they have a $10 one right now. Um, there's also Quick In. There's all sorts of stuff. Oh, right. You could use a Google Sheets template that's literally like income, expenses, you know, net income, or revenue, expenses, net income, if you wanted to. When you're starting a new business, I encourage you to try to like save money where you can and, you know, I know when I started this company, 
I was definitely the one taking the trash out and any you know any type of examples like that that you hear. Eventually, they had to convince me to get a cleaning person around here. Do I need a C? Do I need to visit a CPA or lawyer before I do anything? Do I need a CPA or lawyer on retainer? So need I would say no. Should can we say yeah? Mm. Probably yeah. I don't have a lawyer. You never met with the lawyer? Talked to a lawyer about anything? Not in regards to my business. Okay, so oh, that sounds like a story. <laughs> um, it, I guess we would say it depends, and I I think I would want to leave this podcast with the general advice, like yeah, call one, you know. And it, your business depends, right? So you, especially as a realtor, it right. kind of came with part of being a realtor at a brokerage like ours, as we kind of have a lot of that stuff sort of organized for you and help you get it all, help you get your things set up. Yeah. But if you're opening, again, a dog walking business, then you don't have a broker who's handling a lot of the like legal things for you. That is true. Right? And so... Very true. Or like, our, for example, if you're a graphic designer, um, you can... Just trust people that they're going to pay you for a while and then you'll get burned and then you'll call an attorney and have them make an agreement that you'll now make any future clients sign, you know? So you can either do it now before you get burned or you can get burned and then do it, you know? Yes, that's true. And do I need a CPA or lawyer on retainer? I would say absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I don't have any CPA or lawyer on retainer. I like to kind of pay a la carte as I use it, you know? Yeah, I can't say I put a retainer on the CPA, but I certainly have a CPA that I use. I actually have two. Um, and so I will call them with questions, especially... When Big Buck St. Pierre over here, two CPAs. Yeah. All right. Wow. They, Just can't keep it all they, track of it all, nope, you know? No, nope. but they each have their specialty. Like, I could use one, but it's interesting when you get... I'm sure you have experienced this, where one is really good at doing this, but the other one is... Like one is just a tax genius. Like uh-huh. his whole gold life is to be a tax attorney. He loves the tax laws. So, okay. you, but trying to hit, get him and keep him on track with like the quarterly stuff is a little bit harder and it's not his thing. It's not his niche. So I use one for the quarterly and I use him for my yearly and I go to him for tax advice, especially when it comes to properties mm-hmm. and buying and selling yeah. and rehabbing and investing. Like the guy is just a genius when it comes to that. So, okay. So that's a good point. Like all CPAs are not created equal. All attorneys are not created equal, right? Yes. I, at one point years ago, I called, I had something, oh, I was going to negotiate the lease for this office that we're sitting in. Oh. And I called like kind of our family friend attorney who had been fixing speeding tickets for me and stuff like that. (laughs) And he was like, he was like having, yes, I'm an attorney, but having me review your lease would be like having an eye doctor work on your foot or he had some example <laughs> like that, you know, and say so they all have kind of like specialties that they focus on right. and it makes sense to talk to um, one that specializes in whatever you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, business law is significantly different than family law. Yeah. So which, so go for the business guy. Do I have to pay quarterly taxes and when should I start paying quarterly taxes? Uh, so I believe, yes, you do have to pay quarterly taxes, and I believe that it's based on uh, your previous year's tax burden, and you're supposed to just pay a quarter of that every quarter. Yeah, when you get into a certain level, is that correct? 
that's a CPA question, I guess. I don't know for sure. Yeah, there's a point, a very specific point where you need to start paying quarterly, though. Yeah. And some people would say, don't pay quarterly, keep your money, you know, earn interest on it or invest it or whatever, and then just pay yearly. And they're like, the IRS's penalty is so low that you could have done better with your money. That's I've heard that. I'm not, I'm not advising that at all. I do pay quarterly because I would rather get a little bit of pain or it's still a lot of pain. I'd rather get, (laughs) I'd rather write a smaller check four times a year than the one monster check at the end of the year. And you have to be very disciplined, be putting that money away all year long. But I think that you, some, 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 um, this is where you really do have to have that CPA or accountant on is because I think you have to pay quarterly and you don't, you're, yeah, I think you do too. Penalized every quarter, though. Yeah, well, and then you're late, and then there's late and penalty charges. Just pay quarterly, and I mean, you know, you hear a lot of people get in trouble where they don't pay their taxes, and they have tax liens and all this kind of stuff. We see it in real estate where people have to pay off tax liens to be able to buy a property. Or I've had two deals this year where uh, the you know, the deal was going to go through, but we were waiting on a, the buyer was waiting on a letter from the IRS to verify to the lender exactly what their like workout deal was with the IRS. So the buyer is going, Hey, I have to pay the IRS, you know, whatever, $200 a month towards my back taxes. And the lender's like, put that in, get the IRS to put that in writing. And then the IRS is like, sure we will. And then we're like, okay, it'll be, Weeks, it's taken weeks to get the letter. Oh my gosh. But you, you, people get in trouble when they don't pay their taxes and the end of the year comes and they go, oh no, I owe all this money. So yeah, pay quarterly. Or they'll get a letter from the IRS is like after they do pay all that money, they, oh, you were supposed to pay quarterly. Here's your late fees and penalties. And there you're you just like, hold on. It gets complicated. I, I mean, that's why I definitely encourage the CPA part. Okay, so how does becoming self-employed affect my ability to buy a house or refinancing? That's a great question. So um, best to talk to a mortgage person, um, but my experience in that is that if you want to get a loan, and I guess this is just for mortgage. I don't know if this affects your car loan and all that kind of stuff, but if you want to get a loan to buy a home, they want to see two years experience as a self-employed person and generally that means two years tax returns so not just two years from today it's like two years from today plus another tax return yep two actual self-employed tax returns so if you are you know working at some company now and you have a nice salary and you're thinking about quitting your job but you're also thinking about buying a house soon i do encourage you to buy your house Before you quit your job. Yes. So I've had this scenario where a couple uh, was house shopping and he was, you know, it wasn't that he even switched companies or jobs even, but he went from being a, an employer to an independent contractor with the company he was working with. Mm -hmm. And he made this switch not really realizing that it sh- that it would shut down the deal, so they no longer qualified for a mortgage. Wow! Getting it or buying a house because, I mean, you have to have two years. I mean, and he he, he fought that one. He came back. And he's like, "No, that can't be true. I've been, you know, it's the same job, it's the same 
nope, company different. I'm working for, but now I'm just an independent contractor. So uh, he, I think, exhausted all options and finally said, oh, I guess you're right. So it's good to talk to some sort of bank or mortgage person before you um, would quit your job if you intend to get some sort of major loan anytime in the near future. Or change your employment status. Change your employment status. Hopefully you're independently wealthy and you can just pay cash for the house. Though. Absolutely. I mean, that happens all the time, though. That's what you probably would do. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's get into some realtor-specific stuff. So you want to become self-employed. You want to become a realtor and you want to help people buy and sell homes or do property management or do commercial, whatever it is. Um, one of the first things that you'll do is you'll take the classes that you need to take so that you're allowed to take the real estate test. Okay, so you can get like you can get discounts at these schools? Yeah, so you can take your classes in class. It's, it all depends on how you learn, right? You can take your class in class or online, career education systems, real estate express, first choice real estate school, just to name a few. I did um, career education systems. You did? Yes. I also did career education systems. And they were awesome. That was an in-class one. I think they have online too. Yeah, they do. I think that's uh, STLCE. Or, I forget exactly what it is, but you can Google career education systems. But I don't know how people do it online. It just depends on how people learn and what their lifestyle is, right? You might not be able to. Like I did it where I did night school for my um, salesperson's class. Right. And then I did like during the day, I think it was six days for my broker's class. And it depends on your lifestyle if, and how you learn. Some people would prefer to be at home drinking a beer, sitting on their sofa, taking the classes. You know, it's just really hard for me to retain information that way. Mm-hmm. But I like the different. stories. Like I like the instructor. I liked that he um, relayed. The, he had so many stories uh-huh. that it was um, it helped really kind of bring it all together. Yeah. And so uh, if you do reach out to us, we can get you discounts at most of those real estate class schools or whatever that are available um, through, we're kind of like an affiliate for some of them. Um, But yeah, it's really funny when you're in the class because you're like, hey, I have a question about this. And they go, that's not on the test. Yep. We're not going to talk about that. We're not yet. We're here to We don't want to confuse you, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And um, Which is really interesting because... You go to take all these classes to pass this test, and then you walk out, and you show up at a brokerage, brokerage or, and now you're a real estate agent, and you know nothing, absolutely nothing. You don't even know how to do a showing. You don't. And so I say, like, you go, to, you go to real estate class to learn everything you need to know to pass the test, and then you join our company, and we'll teach you everything you need to know to make Actually money be and be agent. successful as a real estate agent. Yeah. Right. But also, I really, it's, I'm just going off topic now, but we had someone come into the office yesterday to interview me about our brokerage. Which I also think is really interesting when you become an agent, you do these classes kind of on your own type thing. Yeah. It's not you interviewing at brokerages, it's you interviewing the brokers. Absolutely, yeah. The, yeah, you can basically work at any brokerage that you want. And right. so you get to go around and kind of see how they all are, see which one's going to be the best fit for you. I love those meetings. Some people come in unprepared. And then if I can share, some people come in with a huge list of questions <laughs> that they ask me, you right. know, which I, I love that because then they kind of get to like, like you did. And then you get to get a feel of how I answer the questions and what we have and all that kind of stuff, you know? Right. Uh, 
And like our company offers so much. We have so many different types of realtors that do their businesses in so many different ways. We offer so much to everybody, but it's hard if someone comes in and sits down and says, so tell me about, you know, what do you offer an agent? It's like, do you have five hours to, cause I can just talk, you know, but I love it. I prefer it when you have specific questions about what's important well, and I to think, you. Yeah. And then it helps lead you in providing the information. Otherwise you are here all day long. But I think, to your point, when you have these questions, though, and you become a little bit more prepared, it's interesting how brokers will answer them. And there were some that were very polished and trying to almost gave sales presentations, like, because mm-hmm. they want you to come on to their brokerage, right? right? So they're like trying to sell you where you were, um, I thought was so uniquely different is just honest, mm-hmm. right? Like it wasn't a, um, it wasn't snake oil. It wasn't like a promise of you'll be successful. It was just a, well, here I can help you, mm-hmm. but you still have to show up and you still have to work. Yeah. And I mean, it was, I think they were more, I think they were very real and honest answers, which is why I decided to come here. Well, the way that those meetings work is interesting because I, my personality is just, let's just sit down and talk, you know, but I say, and I mean it, I focus on, some companies focus on recruiting. We focus on retention or I focus on retention. And so my goal is to help that the agents that we have be successful. And my time is spent on meeting with our agents and helping them be successful, not on just how can we get more realtors to work here. But they all you know? say that and they are like, oh, you they know, do? Like, well, they all go, we want to make you successful, you know, basically give you the story of holding your hand. And I had a friend that was a real estate agent still is um and she's like oh watch out they say these things and then they're nowhere to be found you're just kind of you'll be flying on your own i didn't know they all say that and then i was like it's my line no but then with you it's like no 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 i think that that's the difference is that you really truly give that hand holding to help propel them because you show up and how many times i mean i've worked head offers i've worked with all kinds of agents and i'm like they have no idea what they're doing Mm-hmm. They have no, they have no clue yeah, because they've never, they're so new and nobody's helping them. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Where's your broker now? Little Herman London sales pitch there. <laughs> um, so another question for a realtor, what will all of my expenses be? And, and I, I was telling you this before the podcast, we used to get people that would call and ask about being a realtor and I would talk and talk and talk and talk to them. But then at some point in the call, it would come up that they're going to have expenses and just I to get could, started, I, just to get started. And I could hear the wind go out of their breath. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I just wasted 45 minutes on a call, you know? Yep. And so now if someone calls and asks, I like to get that right out up front. You're going to have roughly around $1,500 in expenses just to get started. Just to get started. Classes were what? Six, $700, 800 by the time you're said and done. None of the, none of this money is going to our company. It's going to Classes. I don't know exactly how much. I think classes are like three hundred or something. Oh, like that. maybe it's like six hundred. The association. So you're gonna first. You're gonna take your classes, a couple hundred bucks. Then you're gonna take your test. I think that's fifty bucks or so. Get your fingerprints done, at sixty-five or something like that. But then you're gonna go to the association of realtors, and that's where the big charge comes in. And that's to join the association of realtors, which you want to do because you get access to. I hope this isn't offensive. I call it the Holy Trinity, right? And so by joining the Association of Realtors, that's how you get access to the MLS, which is how we find properties and advertise properties. You get access to your Supra, which is the 
key that you use to open boxes at people's houses. Um, and then you get access to online forms, which are all these contracts and stuff that we use. And so by joining the Association of Realtors, paying them money, you're joining the local, the state, and the National Association of Realtors. Then that kind of gives you the the right to now pay for the MLS, the Supra, and well, the online forms is included in the yeah, Association of Realtors. Yeah, but I think it's really interesting because like, I'm like, yeah, you don't have to pay that those as association of realtors you don't have to but if you don't pay it then you can't have access to anything yeah so right. it's kind of a you know you have to yeah and you I want like to they, you know i mean you yeah, you do you want, want to. to you want to you have to have access to soup um the maris the mls and i'm a i'm a big Super. fan of the association of realtors and the national association of realtors they're doing a lot of things kind of like behind the scenes, not just for realtors, but for the public in terms of protecting home ownership and stuff like that. You know, I, I was talking about how they, you don't, you might necessarily not even know, but for example, someone presented like a bill or whatever to make it so that in Missouri, when you sell a house, you have to pay a 3% sales tax. Yeah, that was on right? the... Someone tried to do that. A couple years but ago. So then behind up, right? the scenes, the Association of Realtors is fighting against that. Mm-hmm. And so you might not have even known someone proposed it. You might not have known they spent a ton of money fighting it and ultimately won. But that's the good no, thing I about mean, the association. No, I mean, extra donation to the political action side of it. Yeah, yeah, the action committee. Mm-hmm. Good. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. So <laughs> just, just up front, you should be saving up at least $1,500 before you even start trying to become a realtor. Then once you do become licensed, you will continue to have expenses any company fees that you might have, you're going to have somewhere around, we're saying it's roughly $1,200 a year in continued realtor fees. Right, you, so you pay monthly for your super access, and you think you pay quarterly for the MLS, and... Yearly for the Association yeah, of Realtors. And then, yeah, and then there's another fee in there, too, and I forget exactly what it's for. I feel like it's... There's lots of fees. There's fees that come ongoing. up. So then plus you're paying for gas to drive your clients around. You're paying for lunches, hopefully to, you know, get out of network and meet people. You're going to pay for business supplies. You're going to pay for any advertising you're wanting to do. You're going to be spending money. You know, they say it takes money to make money or whatever. My perspective is that becoming a realtor is actually one of the least expensive businesses you can start. Right. Because you don't like if I wanted to, if I'm a CPA and I want to open my own company, Right. Then now I am getting my own big insurance plan and getting my own big office. You know, those signs that you see out in front of an office or retail space, Mm -hmm. those signs can be five thousand dollars. You know, so becoming a realtor is really one of the cheapest businesses you can start. But, you know, depending on what your financial situation is, it's it might be kind of expensive. Yes. and, And then once you become a realtor, depending on what you do, a question we get a lot is how long until I start making money? And another question is, like, what does an average realtor make or whatever? Um, how long can, until I start making money that 100% depends on you and what you do? And so we've had agents who've joined the company, and they do three deals in their first month, and they make a bunch of money. Didn't We had a realtor. Didn't he get his license, and he had, like, an offer that – or wrote an offer that day? I think he – Yeah, very possibly. I don't remember who that <laughs> yeah. was. But so – I mean, it was in the works – yeah, I mean, a lot of times when you're getting your license, you're telling people that you are, and then you might have a friend or family who's like, oh, I want to buy a house. And you're like, cool, you know, give me a couple of weeks or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. 
And so it, how long until I start making money totally depends on you. But the real question, I guess, is how long until I like regularly make money? Because even that person who had like three deals in their first month, you know, then the next month he didn't have another three deals and the next month, another three deals. So you might have a couple good ones up front that helps you kind of pay for some of the expenses that you had and really helps boost your confidence. But I think that it takes, I, I mean, it can take a year or two years or three years. I think you really if you, when you ask have, agents and we have at those 30, um, under 30 or, yeah. you know, uh, and I would uh, agree with this. I think that question came up and it was three years. Yeah. And I would say at year three, it really turned. I would say for the first few years, it's really, I mean, you're just clawing, trying and. Totally. And it depends on what you do, right? So like our, our company, for example, with, with our having a big property management department, with that comes a ton of leasing and stuff that we do. And so you know, it's easy for us to take a newer agent and feed them a bunch of leasing leads. Yeah. So I will. Yeah. So I spent, and I think you could do it a whole lot faster. I went down, I did the lead, you know, did that leasing kind of, you know, uh-huh. did it for renters and worked with those for a while. Then I worked with an investor and did that side for a long yeah. time. So I did just trying to get my feet wet and really, learning the business and where I wanted to create the focus and where I wanted to go and how. Totally. So I probably spent more time getting my feet wet and trying to figure out my angle than maybe someone comes in and is like, no, I'm doing re- you know residential and here I go. Totally. Yeah. And we, we do encourage people to take at least a year of just doing a little bit of everything to kind of figure out what they like. Because mm-hmm. you might come in and say, I want to be in commercial. I want to sell warehouses. Okay, but you might find out that you really like doing short sales or working with tenants or property management or whatever. And uh, it's really interesting. I I really encourage people to come in and and talk. And I like to do sort of like a people reading of different personalities, but it's all based on my knowledge of the DISC test, the DISC personality assessment. And uh, different personalities will be successful in different areas or niches or whatever of real estate. And, but I think that that's the benefit of Herman London too, is that there's, we have a really large residential, we have a great commercial side, we have leasing, mm-hmm. we have a ton of invest, investors. Mm-hmm. So it, yep. it really covers the gamut of it. They ask, what uh, does the average realtor make? And I always, I like to kind of give a snarky answer on that. And I say zero, the average realtor makes zero money well, because right, but- there's so many people that get their license and do nothing. Right. So what not, I think, what is the statistic? 80, 90% uh, people that get their license are not active a year later. Mm-hmm. What is that? It's super high. It's I don't know the statistic, high. but the deal is, you know, as a self-employed person, independent contractor, you have to be self-motivated. And I found that people like leave their job, they get their realtor's license, then they are at home and like, no one's making me be at work today. Like what's going on? Like, I watched Oprah all day and no one yelled at me. Yeah. Right. And like, I went to the office at nine 30 and they didn't say well, you're supposed to be here at nine and whatever. And you have to be self-motivated. Nobody's going to make you do it. And a lot of people just don't have that kind of self drive or whatever discipline. Mm-hmm. The, it, it's a true discipline. So would you encourage keeping a job while you're starting your real estate career? I do encourage people to keep a job while starting a real estate career, um, even if you have a ton of money. Like a lot of people save up a bunch of money and uh, they say, like, uh, 
For example, before I jumped, quit my job and became a full-time realtor, I saved up six months worth of expenses because Ooh. I knew that it would take me a while to really start making money. But on a consistent I, basis. On a consistent mm-hmm. basis. But what I... I don't think you should necessarily just wait until you have six months of income saved up. I think you should also wait to quit your job until you have kind of a pipeline of clients ready to go. Because what I find is if you quit your job today, I'm going to become a realtor. It takes a couple months. Let's say even be generous. It takes two, three months before you get your first client who's really ready to go or first couple clients who's really ready to go. And then it takes another month or so maybe at, you know, to find them a property and then another month or so before they close, right? Before mm-hmm. you get your check. So now we're up to what? Six months before I've gotten they my can, first check, yeah. right? I think that's what they average. And yeah. so what happens is people, they have this kind of savings account and then, you know, month two, they haven't made any money and they're spending money. So it goes boop, right? And then month three, they haven't made any money, but they're spending money it goes boop. And they're looking at it, right? And they're freaking out. They're freaking out. So what I've noticed is around month four, they're they're like, oh my God, my savings account is going way down. And although they might have clients ready to go and they know they have money coming, they're panicking. So then on month five or month six, instead of like focusing on getting more business and following up with people and doing whatever, they're kind of starting to look online for another job. Yeah. And so then month five and six is wasted by them just looking for another job and they kind of have given up on real estate already. And so if you have some sort of part-time job, you know, like whatever it is, you know, bartender or whatever, whatever this part-time job is that offers you flexibility, then you have income still coming in. And so you won't have that kind of panic when you see your bank account that keeps going down. Plus a lot of realtors who, start off in the business, you know, they're selling real estate to people that they know, friends and family. And a lot of those people that they know are from their past job. You know, I ended up getting a lot of business from my old accounting job. Nice. And so if you, if you do have a job, maybe you can get some, um, business out of that. Yeah. And and so, and I think that that's another thing too, is it depends on how many, uh, you know, if you have friends and family here, if you grew up here, you might have a sphere of influence that you can kind of tap into. I'm not from here. I was working in the corporate world where I traveled all the time, so Mm -hmm. I didn't even have friends here. Yeah. So it's, you know, you come at a point where it's a little harder to get started if you don't, aren't from here and Mm -hmm. don't, you never worked here either. Yeah. And you have to keep that in mind. Your, your daily kind of like the things that you're going to do on a daily basis will be different than somebody who went to high school here, went to college locally or whatever is on a softball team, a kickball team has all these friends. Their day is going to be probably like socializing, going to the party, whatever. And your day probably had to be more doing advertising, doing networking, calling people, working internet, integrate into the the city, like integrate into like finding those things to do now that I live here, you know, full time here. And in either case, both both of the different paths, those people have to take some time to let their their sphere or whatever know that they're in the business, then build their their sphere's trust by seeing that they're having some success and that they're doing it um, because people don't generally want to work with a realtor for their very first deal. I mean, I you don't you don't want to work with a realtor that's never done a deal before generally. Yeah, but Again. there's. I think that that's the really good thing about you too is that you're not going to let someone just walk on, you know, 
fly on their own. Like you'll, you walk them through that. And then yes, you might have to find a patient client, Mm -hmm. but I actually think it's fine. Yeah. We do like to like a new agent. We like them to bring us along essentially on their meetings and stuff like that. So that they're, you know, because we want their client to feel taken care of and be taken care of and have all their answers or questions answered and all that kind of stuff. And as far as the contracts and stuff like that, walking them through that so that everything's done properly and in, in the best interest of the clients. Well, so for anyone who has any other questions, comments, wants to meet, wants to talk, whatever, just reach out to us. But everyone I know has really been waiting to hear about Shannon's newest listing. Yeah, so I have a listing coming up um, in Soulard. It will be on the market. Um, Where's and I, Soulard? Yeah, in the city. Kind of also known as, you know, the French quarters of St. Louis. It's where Mardi Gras is. So wait, are you going to have this listing when Mardi Gras is happening? You know, it will probably, yes. And so anytime there's a listing in Soulard, there are no showings during Mardi Gras. (laughs) Can we get the the owner's permission to have a party there? I take the lockbox off of the properties (laughs) during Mardi Gras. Okay, okay. I was thinking maybe like a special party or something like that. But one of the cool and no, things... Yeah, we do. I mean, I always take the lockboxes off and I know probably other agents that do that as well just so that agents like, you know, you aren't just stopping by to... Uh, go to the bathroom, use whatever. Use the bathroom yeah. and... Oh, look at the house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, go on. Sorry, I interrupted No, no. I just think this house is really unique. I mean, the city houses are unique in of themselves and this does retain a ton of character but what I think is very interesting about this property that's kind of not new to me even is for one it has solar panels Mm -hmm. which is you know maybe a good thing maybe not a good thing you know you kind of go i don't know like and then it has he's really kind of techie it has emergency lighting kind of throughout so it has these led strips of lighting in rooms throughout the house that's all wired down to this battery that's in his workshop. Wow. And so I'm like, how often do lights go out? Like, it happens, but I never thought of doing emergency lighting. All the lights are automated, so when you walk in, lights start popping on. You're like, oh, hello, hi. And so, and even as you walk through the house, they start popping on. And it's it's That's cool. You know, what what I found is when we're walking through a house with the buyer, I think we might have mentioned this last time, is that... If they get the feeling that the seller is kind of a detail-oriented person, then they like the house better because they feel like they've probably taken care of things. If they get the feeling that the seller was not taking care of things or that the rehabber was just trying to do things quick and cheap, then they automatically don't maybe like the house as much. And so you walk through there and you get the feeling that the seller really took care of the was, details. Yeah, in and even on the second floor, there's like this greenhouse-type room that's sunroom it's all kind of glass and he has an automatic mister on there like so to mist the plants and stuff and i'm going so even having to go over there just even trying to get some learn i had to learn and have him kind of walk me through these things i'm like i don't even know how that works and i wouldn't even know how to convey that so i think i'll even have to walk the new buyer through and explain what these things are how they work where love it so if someone is interested in a house in Soulard or that, that area in general, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, so you can call or email Shannon. Um, my email is Shannon at livingtowergrove.com. Okay. Phone number 314-583-0070. Or, of course, you can just find me online, social media, Instagram, 
Facebook. Gram me. Yeah. Cool. So thanks everybody for listening. Like as always, we really want to hear from you. We're, we're really trying out this Facebook live thing and uh, hoping to get more feedback from people. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Please reach out, give us a call and have a great day. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.